see you because this is what God has called us to do, to gather together, to gather as his people to worship him, to sing with one voice, to sit under his word and to dine at his table. And so it, it really is good for us to be together in worship. Well, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is out of Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9. Uh, we uh, are looking at just one verse in Isaiah 9. You remember uh, from a couple weeks ago, we're beginning, we were starting to look at the various titles of this Messiah that is to come that is found in Isaiah 9, verse 6. These titles that we know uh, are applied to Jesus. And so let's go ahead and read Isaiah 9. We're, only, we're going to read verses 2 through 7, so we have context for these titles. Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are in need of your grace this morning. We are in need of you to open our eyes and to soften our hearts. Father, I need you to guide my words, and we are all in need of you to direct our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that, that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. I'm sure many of you uh, remember the movie from a number of years ago, Gladiator. Uh, it came out when I was uh, in college, and this was a movie that uh, probably every high school and college uh, young man and boy love to watch, right? Gladiator, the story of Maximus, this great Roman general who would go and he would uh, lead his troops into battle, right? This great leader loved Gladiator. It was one of my favorite movies. Gladiator is, is that story of Maximus, this general who becomes a slave, who then opposes the Roman authority. Well, Gladiator begins with this scene, the Roman Empire, ancient Rome. The Roman Empire is extending its territory, its kingdom throughout the world, right? It's possessing most of the known world, and it's doing so. It's taking control with arms, right, by force. And it begins as, as Rome is taking this portion of a Germanic land. There's one last battle, one last fight, and then hopefully there will be peace amongst the Roman Empire, and so Maximus leads his troops to battle against this Germanic people, right? He goes to war. He's one of those generals that he goes to battle with his men. He's the first on the field, and he's wielding his sword, and he's bloodied and bruised, and he's leading them into victory. And that's what he does. He's victorious. He's triumphant. He wins the battle. 
And as he unmounts, he gets off his horse, he finds his sword, he's cleaning the blood off the blade. The emperor, Marcus Aurelius, greets him. You remember this if you've seen the movie Marcus Aurelius. He's the emperor of Rome, but he's not an emperor that goes into battle. He is frail and weak. He is aging. He has watched the battle from the sidelines, from behind the lines. He can watch at a safe distance because to go into battle would mean that he would be killed. He's weak and aging. Well, Maximus is coming near to him, and Marcus Aurelius dismounts from his horse, and he greets him amongst his men. All the men, their knees are bowed and their heads are down. As Marcus Aurelius, this great emperor of Rome, and Maximus, they, they begin to talk and they walk together. Maximus returns Marcus Aurelius to his, to his horse, and as he approaches it, this aging, this weak, this near-death emperor needs a ladder to get back on his horse. He needs the, the strong arm of Maximus to hold him steady. The symbol of the greatness of Rome, and he can't even mount his horse. Before he rides back, he leans down and he whispers to Maximus, so much for the glory of Rome. See, the emperor was the symbol of the power, the glory, the strength of Rome. But this emperor, now his strength was failing. His, his life was nearing its end. He could not go into battle. It was the strength of Maximus that led them. So much for the glory of Rome. It looked like the glory was fading. I imagine that Israel and Judah, the time of Isaiah's writing, they wouldn't have said so much for the glory of Rome, but I, I can't help but wonder if some of them said so much for the glory of Israel or the glory of Judah. Remember, they are in darkness. That's what Isaiah said. That, that there is the greatness of Israel, the greatness of this people, it seems as though it is fading. Remember, the kingdom has been divided into north and south, and the southern kingdom is being ruled by this terrible king, this immoral leader, Ahaz. <clears throat> and so it would be very easy for them to wonder so much for the glory of Judah. Maybe the greatness, maybe the the glory, the, the light that is shining, maybe it is becoming dim. And it's into this situation that the prophet Isaiah speaks. He speaks and he gives a promise that, that the glory of God will not fade simply because there is a bad king. That the glory of God would not fade because there is a warring nation. Remember, Assyria is bearing down upon Judah. The glory of God would not fade but instead, Isaiah promises in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. God's glorious light shines into what appears to be a fading people. And it shines through, through the embodiment of a child. Through a child, this one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's where our attention turns, to this child. The second of the titles to mighty God. You see, this phrase, mighty God, it means that the coming of light will come with God's great power. That though it looked as though Judah was fading, instead, God would restore her. 
God's glory wouldn't fade, but it would shine all the brighter with this coming king, this mighty God. It speaks, that phrase speaks to the power of God that would be embodied in this child. You see, that word mighty, it is often used in military contexts or in times to tell of God's great power over all things. So for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we read that for the Lord your God is God. He's God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God. What Deuteronomy is telling us is that that God is is stronger than the gods of the world, right? Remember, Deuteronomy was coming on the cusp of them leaving Egypt, where there were hundreds of gods. And what Moses is telling them in Deuteronomy is that there is only one God. There is one Lord, and he is mighty, and he is powerful. He is the mighty God. He is stronger and more glorious than anything else. And this child to come that is promised, Jesus, he will embody this strength, this glory, this power. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. How is it that Jesus' life reveals the power of God, the might of God? How is it that Jesus' life shows us that he is not just some child, but he is mighty God? And we see the might of God, we see his power displayed in Jesus' conception, in his conception. So you remember in Luke 1, Luke 1, we have the story of the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. And he comes and he says to Mary, Mary, you're going to have a son, right? And, and Mary's perplexed, right? She's bewildered. This is strange because not only is Mary not just a woman, she's a young girl, but she's not only a young girl, she's also a virgin. And she knows, just like we know, that virgins don't get pregnant, Right? And so she's perplexed, she's bewildered, and so she asks the logical question, well, how will this be? And so the angel Gabriel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, what the angel is declaring to Mary is that something that has never occurred in the history of the universe is about to happen to her that the virgin will bear a child. And it will come about because the power of God will overshadow her so that this miraculous conception will come about by God. He is the one who will do it. Jesus' very conception shows the mightiness of God. It shows the power of God. But it's not just his conception that shows this, but also his incarnation And this is where I want to spend most of our time this morning, his incarnation. Now, Isaiah 6 tells us that a child is to be born. To us, a son is given. And so there is no question that the king that is to come is going to be flesh and bone and blood, right? He's going to be a child. But he's not only a child. Isaiah says that he will be mighty God. Now, now, if you remember from two weeks ago, when we were talking about Wonderful Counselor, I mentioned how there are some who who want to try and dismiss these titles as a way of just simply describing Hezekiah, right? Hezekiah was Ahaz's son. And so so they want to discount these titles and say they, they really aren't talking about any kind of special king. It's just the next king in the line. And they try and use this phrase as well, mighty God. Because mighty God sounds like, well, well, that doesn't sound like just anybody, right? Like, like that, 
try, try living up to that name, <laughs> Mighty God, right? So, so how do they do this? Well, they, they try and explain it away and say, well, this really is better translated, Great Hero. And these words taken by themselves can be translated that way, Hero and Great. However, every single time that they are united together, they are clearly describing God himself. So I already mentioned Deuteronomy 10, but in Isaiah 10, so one chapter after our chapter, in Isaiah 10, verses 20 through 21, the prophet Isaiah writes, In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord. Okay, you guys, if you turned to Isaiah 10 and you looked and saw, Lord is in small caps. Okay, I did this in Sunday school. You all know what small caps means when it's translated Lord, right? We've gone over this many, many times if you've been here. Lord in small caps is the divine name Yahweh, okay? It's Yahweh. This is the word that is only used of God himself, okay? It's not just some Lord. It's not just any Lord. It is the Lord over the universe, the creator over all. And so Isaiah says, we'll lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. And then he goes on and says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. So what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah 10 is he is linking that title, mighty God, with the name Yahweh, with the Lord, with God himself. That phrase, mighty God, in Isaiah 10, it's the exact same phrase in Isaiah 9. And so when it's applied to the child, what we see is that this isn't going to be some generic hero. This isn't Hezekiah that's coming. No, this this is God himself. This is God coming in the flesh. He is a child, for to us a child is born, but he is also mighty God. And this is something that the church has affirmed about Jesus since the very beginning. But more importantly, this is something that Jesus has affirmed about himself since the very beginning. See, I realize that there are those who are skeptical about the the humanity and divinity of Christ. Maybe even in this room, there are some of you who maybe would question that. Right? There are some who want to downplay it and say, well, Jesus never really taught that. Jesus never taught. It was just some concoction by the early church as a way to build power and influence, right? It was just a power play. But Jesus never really taught it. But, But in actuality, the early church and we ourselves are simply just affirming what it was that Jesus himself taught. So for instance, in John 14, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says that he and the Father are one. And in John 8, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus was born. And what Jesus is declaring in that statement is that before Abraham was, he was there. That he was with the Father and the Spirit in the very beginning. Before Abraham was, I am. This is an explicit reference to Jesus' deity. And so the truth is, friends, if we're going to be honest with the biblical witness, we can't say that the Bible or Jesus never claimed his divinity. We could say that he's wrong. We could say that he's a liar. We could say that he's crazy. 
But if you're going to say those things, then what are you celebrating at Christmas? Like, seriously, what goodwill toward men, peace on earth, right, an ethic of love? If they're built on the, the teachings of a liar or of a lunatic, then, then why would you ever embrace those? Now, you see, you see we, we shouldn't buy that narrative, because the truthfulness is, is that we have very good reason to celebrate and to worship this Christmas. Because Christ is both God and man. He is the child that was born, 100% man. And he is the God, the mighty God, who before Abraham was, he was. 100% God, 100% man. Hypostatically united together in one person. That is what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus declares. This is what we sing, right? Hail the incarnate deity. That's why we worship him, because what occurred in Jesus' incarnation is something that has never happened again and will never happen ever after this. Now listen, even as we affirm this and even as we sing of it, it doesn't mean that we get it, right? I mean, just... Just the other week, I was talking to my kids about this, and they're asking me questions. So, so Jesus was a man, um, but he's God, so that means he's a spirit, right? No, 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 kids. They're, he's not a spirit because he had flesh and blood and bones, and he has a soul. He has a spirit, but he's, he's also a man, and he's God. But So he's kind of like the Father then? He's kind of like God the Father? Well, sort of like God the Father, right? He's... He's of the same substance, right? He's homoousius, right? Guys, you get that. You understand. No, the kids, they went blank, right? They didn't know that. Um, you know, he's, he's of the same substance, equal in power and glory, but he's different. He's not the Father, but he's not the Holy Spirit. He's the second person, the Trinity. He's not just God, take, God the Father taking on flesh. That would be modalism, and that's a heresy. We don't want to go there. Right? Doesn't this make sense, kids? Right? <laughs> And uh, they didn't laugh. It was just like, huh? Maybe we'll ask this next year. <laughs> right? Because it's not, just, it's not just hard for a child to believe. It's hard for their pastor or father to fully comprehend. Right? 100% God and 100% man in one person. But here's the thing, friends. That's exactly what Jesus declares. And that's exactly what the Bible says was going to happen, and that's exactly what did happen. And whether we are able to comprehend it or not, and the truth is, is that none of us are fully able to comprehend it, and that is okay. Whether we can comprehend it or not, that is exactly what we need. You see, we don't just need a man. We need the God-man. The French theologian John Calvin put it this way. He said, if we find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our glorying will be foolish and vain, and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. Do you hear what he's saying? If Jesus was only a man, if he was only flesh and blood, if he was only bone, then our foundation, our hope, it's failing. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that we don't simply worship a man. We worship the God-man. You see, our foundation, it is secure and it is sure because the mighty God 
has shown his power in this once in an eternity conception. He shows his power in his incarnation, in doing what no one else could have done. But we also see his power, his might shown in our salvation. In the fact that Jesus didn't just, he wasn't just conceived, he just wasn't incarnate, but he also triumphs. Our mighty God triumphs. In verse 4, the prophet Isaiah writes, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, the day of Midian, uh, if, if you're familiar with your Old Testament narrative, this should maybe, maybe somewhere in the recesses of your mind, you're remembering something about Midian. Midian shows up in the book of Judges. In Judges 7 and 8, the judge Gideon has been called. He's been raised up to protect his people. So he's a judge over Israel. Now, the Israelite judges aren't like judges that we think about. Like they didn't wear black robes and kind of, you know, rule over judicial cases. A judge was someone who was raised up to be a defender of Israel. And so Midianites, the Midianites, the Midianite hordes are coming to attack Israel. And so God raises up Gideon to be their protector. He raises up Gideon to be the judge over Israel to defend them. And so Gideon assembles his army. You remember this? He gets tens of thousands of soldiers to go to battle. And he gets ready to go to war against the Midianites. But God says, whoa, 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 whoa. you got way too many. You remember this? You got too many soldiers. You got too many soldiers. So you need to get rid of a few of them. And so he you know, reduces it down to, I think it was like 15,000 or 13,000, right? It's still kind of smaller than Midian, but, but they've still got a good, good army. But God's like, no, 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 that's still not, it's still too many. It's still too many. You got to get a little bit lower. It gets down to about 300, right? And so God says, this is your army, Gideon. You're going to go to war against this warring nation with 300 men. And to, also, you're going to follow my plan. You remember his plan? Everybody's going to have a lamp, and they're going to have a horn. And when God says to Gideon to give the signal, they're going to break the lamps and they're going to blow the horns. And that's, that's their battle plan. And that's exactly what they did. And the Midianite army was thrown into confusion. And they, they don't know who the army is that's coming against them. They, they hear the horns and the, the smashing of the, the lamps, and they thought that there were thousands upon thousands, and so they start warring with each other. And the Midianites are killing each other because they don't know who the enemy is. And then Israel, with their 300 soldiers, trounces them. What's the point of that? God did it. God brought the army so low that the only way they could have victory was if God triumphed for them. And that's what he did. And that's what Isaiah is saying is going to happen when the Messiah comes. That there is going to be a triumph that will occur that could only happen if God does it. Just like in the day of Midian. This Messiah will come and he will triumph. And that's what Jesus does. Our mighty God, he triumphs over sin. He triumphs over sin. I mean, think about it. Jesus didn't just leave the glory of heaven. He wasn't conceived and in incarnate. He didn't undergo the miseries of this life just to show that he had the power to do so. No, he did it so that we would be saved, that our sins would be forgiven. I mean, that's what John the Baptist said when Jesus came out. 
He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus went through all this. Our mighty God took on flesh so that our sins would be forgiven. Our sins would be wiped away, and not by bringing the sword, but by taking the sword upon himself. That's what Colossians 2 tells us. He says that we who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Your sins, if you are trusting in Christ, have been nailed to the cross because they have been laid upon him. Christ triumphs over your sin and over mine. And he does so by going to his death. But here's the thing. If crucifixion is the end of the story, then there really is no triumph. It's like in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in uh, C.S. Lewis's wonderful uh, children's book. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Aslan, the Christ figure, this great lion, he has given himself in place of Edmund. Edmund, that little boy, that traitorous little boy who turned his back on his family. Aslan says, I will... I will I will substitute myself for him. And so he comes, and he comes to the white witch, right? The epitome of evil in these books. He comes to the white witch, and as he approaches her at the stone table, he, he walks with, with, this, uh, with this road lined with evil creatures. And they are jarring at him, and they are spitting at him, and they are throwing profane, profanity at him, and, and they hit him, and they kick him, and they push him over, and they tie him up, and they shave his mane. And they lay him on the stone table, and the witch kills him. And do you remember what the evil creatures did? They celebrated, and they rejoiced, and they sang. Because they thought that in Aslan's death, evil had won. And friends, if Christ stayed dead, evil would have won. Death would have triumphed. But Jesus doesn't stay dead. You see, the amazing thing is that Christ triumphs not only over sin, but he also triumphs over death. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And when Jesus rose powerfully from the grave, death was defeated. It had met its match. I love the movie depiction of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when Aslan shows up on the battlefield, the resurrected Aslan, and he comes, he comes running into battle, and the white witch sees him, and the look on her face Right, The look on her face of, of shock and amazement and fear because she just knows that he has done what no one else could have done. That he defeated death, whereas everyone else had fallen victim to it. She's afraid because Aslan has triumphed. And friends, that's what Christ has done. His resurrection triumphs over death. 
It triumphs over sin. His resurrection is the first fruits of the glorious day of God's triumph over death, fruits that he now shares with us. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. It tells us that the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that is at work in our lives. It is the same power that caused us who were dead in our sins to be made alive in Christ. Think about that. Think about that. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that Paul tells us is at work in us. It is only by that kind of power that we could go from death to life. That we could now say no to sin and yes to godliness. That sin no longer reigns over you. It no longer has authority over you. Paul says himself in Romans that we are not slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. That only happens because of resurrection power. Our mighty God working on our behalf. And we know this. I mean, just think about your own lives. Some of y'all's lives, some of y'all's stories, I've heard them. That, that some of us were the kind of people that Christians and the church would have looked at and did look at and think they will never come to church. And they will never believe the gospel. I told my Sunday school class when I was a teenager, I mocked the church. Made fun of it. Foolish people, how could they believe something so archaic? It's uneducated. Sure, they're smart in their professions, but they are foolish and silly. My brother and I sat in a church and we mocked what was occurring. But God didn't leave us there. And he didn't leave you there. He took those who were dead in their sins and their trespasses and he breathed new life into them. He says to all of us now by his triumphant power, by his resurrection power, there is now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. That the old is gone and the new has come. You are a new creation. That only happens by the power of our mighty God. It only happens by Christ coming and dwelling amongst us. And that's what he has done. Our mighty God has triumphed. He has come. He has lived amongst us. You know, in that opening scene of Gladiator, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, uh, he walked amongst the men. He and uh, Maximus, they, they walked amongst the men and close enough that the men could have reached out and touched them. He walked amongst them and, and they bowed their knees and they lowered their gaze and he walked amongst them in his weakness and in his age and in his frailty. And even though he was lacking strength and, and this lack of strength was so evident, he still walked in front of them. But even as he walked amongst them, he was never one of them. He was never one of them. You see, he walked amongst them, and the army saw a king unlike them. A king that was distant, though they could touch him. A king that was other, though he was near. They saw a king whose glory was fading. But in Christ? See, Christ didn't just walk amongst his people. Our mighty God stooped down from heaven, and he took on flesh and was found in human form. He didn't just walk amongst us. He became like us. 
He became like us, and he lived a life that we couldn't live. And he died a death that we deserve to die, and in his death, we don't see the weakness of a failing king. What we see is by his resurrection power, the triumph and glory of mighty God. Amen. Father, we thank you that you did send your son, our Lord Jesus, who by his strength and power saved and rescued people that were far from him, a people who were in rebellion against him. God, you did a great and mighty work. Lord Jesus, we praise and worship you because you did not regard equality with the Father, something to be grasped, but you took on flesh and humbled yourself. You lived and you died and you rose again so that our sins would be forgiven. And so we ask today and all of our days that we would worship you, our God and our King, our mighty God, our Savior. We pray in Christ's name and God's people said, Amen.